Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you for joining us. I am here today with one of my patient advocacy heroes. This is Alana Jacqueline. Alana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. And I was just telling her before we started recording that um, her book, Surviving and Thriving with an Invisible Illness, is one of the first, or Invisible Chronic Illness, I should say, is one of the first books I read when I got sick and has been such a handy guidebook for dealing with everything, um, no matter what you've got going on. As long as it's chronic, you will be helped by this book. So um, it is just such a pleasure to have you on and to talk today um, with an author and patient advocacy strategist. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me again. And I'm so glad that it helped and that it was one of the first books because I really wrote it in that vein to be a initial guidebook for yeah anybody walking into this kind of situation in their life. Yeah. I tell you what though, you know, you say initial guidebook, but it's one that I go back to a lot too, you know? And I think a lot of people who read the book do come back to it. Like sometimes we need a little like refresher or reminder of what boundaries look like and you know, what our elevator pitch can look like and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, as, especially as these things develop over time. So it's just fantastic. So everyone go get a copy and I'll link to it on the episode page. Um, so I think the best way to start is for you to tell us about your background. Um, if you could tell us when and how you first realized that you were sick and what you did about it. So, um, I have, uh, my main condition is primary immune deficiency disease, which is a rare genetic disease. And it was something that I was born with, but it was not something that I was diagnosed with until I was 19. Mm. And, um, but I always kind of, I always knew I was sick. I mean, from very, very, very early on, I had issues with digestion and I was a living, walking Petri dish, like just constant infections. Um, and, and I always knew that something was wrong. Um, and, and I just have memories like walking around with like Altoids in the pocket of my school uniform because I was always nauseated and, mm. you know, I was just, I was constantly catching colds and viruses. And, um, when I was seven, I had uh, a pneumothorax and pneumonia, uh, and was in the hospital for about a month and, mm. and things never really went back to normal after that. And every sickness kind of took its toll. And it wasn't until I was really a senior in high school that I really thought, oh, this is this is abnormal. Mm. Uh, and it's serious. And, you know, and yeah, but it wasn't until I was an adult that I really kind of stepped into that word chronic illness or invisible illness and, and understood that 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 was me they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so much of the journey of being able to not take on this identity, but allow these diagnoses to be a part of who we are, um, mm -hmm. can be really hard. And you, you address that in all of your writing in your blog and, um, you know, in the book. Um, so what steps did you take to control your health once you got these diagnoses? Well, um, it was, 
it was kind of a big shift for me because I grew up in a, a mostly like holistic family. You know, my mother did energy work. My aunt was an acupuncturist and I grew up in Boca Raton, which, which is, you know, kind of an affluent city where there are a lot of quote unquote healers. Mm. And so I kind of got roped into that world as a child. Um, and it was obviously not effective for me. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I tried a bunch of things. Uh, I tried elimination diets. I tried allergy testing. Um, and then when I was around 14, I started seeing actual specialists and getting testing done. Um, you know, there was really no such thing as controlling my health as a kid or as a teen. Um, and now even as an adult, uh, you know, I can do my best. But I, I do a lot of things to try and improve the situation. I do, you know, things like physical therapy twice a week. Um, I also go to therapy like with a therapist um, every week because it's so stressful and it's something that you have to take care of both sides of. Um, and I and I check in with all my different specialists every month. But um, I try to keep my stress levels low. I do a lot of self-care and try not to push myself over the limit too much. Um, but there's still a lot of, of treatments and therapies that I want to pursue because I'm just so eager to do everything possible to control it. Mm. But rushing to do 100 therapies at once is a good way to make sure they all fail. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll never know which one's working either way. <laughs> yeah. So um, how long a gap was there between you thinking, oh, gee, something's up and getting a diagnosis as well, particularly with uh, the primary immune deficiency? Um, well, I think, like I said, I kind of like always knew that something was off. Mm. Um, and I, I started trying to pursue a diagnosis when I was like 14 or 15. Um, and I just started doing all these, like, it was mostly gastrointestinal stuff. So it was a lot of like scopes and they kept going in and, and trying to do scopes on me and not finding anything. Mm. Um, so it took several years as a teenager to really get to a point where like somebody actually took me seriously. Yeah. Um, and it, and it was eventually, I mean, I was, I was completely ruined by the time that I got my diagnosis. I was extremely weak. My um, antibodies were very, very low. Um, and so by, by the time that I went and I saw that doctor and I got the test done, as soon as, they, um, as soon as the doctor got the results and he called me and he was like, wherever you are, stop, get in the car, go to the hospital, mm. go and get your IVIG because like, your levels are bad. Right. Yeah. Well, and can you tell us a little bit about what primary immune deficiency is, just so that the listeners who are tuning in who aren't familiar can have some sense of what you're living with every day? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the primary immune deficiency disease, uh, basically your immune system is made up of different antibodies, and I am just, I'm missing a whole chunk of them, just a whole class of them. And um, and those are the antibodies that protect you from infections, from viruses, uh, from bacteria. And so basically um, what this means for me in like my everyday life is that uh, I'm very susceptible to getting sick from other people. Um, I sh shouldn't really be in crowds, on like airplanes, like in places where you're going to get sick. Mm -hmm. um, and that it takes me a very long time to recover. Now, primary immune deficiency disease uh, does have a treatment. It's one of the 5% of um, rare diseases that actually has a treatment for it. Mm. Um, and that's intravenous immunoglobulin therapy. Um, Just the IV, IG that you mentioned before. Yeah. And so yeah. you would go and go to the hospital and, and get this, um, this infusion. And um, I don't know if it was just that we had not figured out my diagnosis for 19 years, but I didn't respond to the treatment. Um, I did it for, I did uh, treatments in the hospital for about six months. And then um, I did home treatments, which are called sub, sub Q IVIG, which is where they kind of do like um, shots in your stomach. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did that and I just, I had no, um, no, no positive reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, now I'm at the point where, because that didn't work, the only way to treat me is if I get an infection, then we treat the infection. And mm. because I don't respond to uh, your basic Z pack antibiotics, it generally goes from a very high dose of either prophylactic antibiotics or 
um, you know, reactive antibiotics to um, IV antibiotics and, you know, kind right. of from there, but it's a lot of like, just being aware, you know, it's, I, um, I don't get temperatures at all. Like, mm. I yeah, like I, I had pneumonia, I had sepsis, the wow. highest temperature I ever got was like 99. Like that was my highest temperature. Oh, wow. Um, my body doesn't fight back. So, um, I could be very, very extremely ill and not really know it. So I have mm. to take my temperature a couple times a day, make sure that, you know, I'm not in the middle of an infection that I don't even know about. And I always kind of feel sick. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. just something I have to be constantly aware of and checking on and proactive about. Yeah. Well, I mean, the next thing I was going to ask you and you sort of started getting into it is what a typical day is like for you. Um, how do you go about your day managing your symptoms and preventing future illness? It's, it's definitely a challenge because I am a type A personality and it's always us. Yeah, <laughs> We're always the ones who get chronic illness. I never yeah. understand it. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, I want to work and I take care of my house and my dog. I'm married. I'm, you know, I, I built kind of like a whole life for myself, but my disease is for the most part in control of how I'm able to live. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so basically I just try to be as kind to myself as I can, which has been a long, long road. Mm-hmm. Um, because I used to really have a overall frustration and like self-hatred. Like I can't get as much done as everyone else can. I can't do as fast as everyone else can. I, you know, I can't go out and go to parties or, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of events that I want to go to, or can't go to conferences and try to find ways to, you know, to, to participate in all the things I want to participate in, but do that in ways that don't destroy my body. So, um, you know, telecommuting and I'm, and I've really been able to do so much with that. I've been able to make a whole career for myself without having to endanger my body. Um, and you know, explore and meet new people. And, um, and as I get better and as I do a little bit better, I can go out and, and pick and choose what's kind of worth it to me to expend my energy and, um, and security on to go out and do so. Yeah. I mean, one of the, well, you talk about a few of these things in your book too, right? You talk about, um, different ways that you can work, um, remotely. If you're somebody who has a schedule that they kind of need to let their body manage instead of letting a a larger corporation manage it. Um, and also you talk about, you know, really making space in your social life, in, in your professional life and in every aspect of your life for your disease to exist without taking control of your identity. And one of the things you talked about, um, that hasn't come up yet when we've been talking is when, um, you had to have like pick lines, um, and you would have like the ports that would be visible if you wore a tank top because you're living in Florida, you know, and you weren't going to wrap up in a, a muumuu or something to cover it up. So how do you manage the, you know, at least the early concerns about stigma with um, things like that that are visible um, versus the invisible, you know, symptoms like fatigue and nausea that you can't really explain fully to people unless they experience yeah, it themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a confusing kind of thing to deal with because in some situations you don't want anyone to know what's going on. You just want to be like everyone else. You just want to be normal. You don't want that to be a part of the the storyline. And then in other situations, it's like, it's imperative that people know that you are sick, yeah. that things are different for you. When my disease started to become visible, when I had my, I had a central line placed, I think it was in 2014. So I was 24. Um, and before that I had pick lines, which are lines in the arm. And um, obviously both of those were visible. And um, I had definitely some weird reactions uh, from people, random strangers. I was out mm-hmm. for lunch with my mom at like a nice restaurant and some guy came over to our table, like didn't sit down, but like basically like leaned down, put his elbows on the table, looked at me and was like, so what's that all about? No, I cannot believe the way people behave sometimes is insane. And, and I also, another situation I had was I was going, I was at a gas station and the cashier 
um, I was going and buying Gatorade and the cashier looked at me and he looked at my chest and he's like, oh my God, did you get shot? Like just a week. Well, this is yeah. America. So <laughs> not entirely I unlikely. Like, I looked at him and I was like, even if I was, why would you ask? Like, well, it's, it's none of your so business. Not, yeah. That's yeah. Unreal. Like just situations where, you know, and it was all situations where I wasn't thinking about it, where I was in the, in the mindset right. of like, you know, where I was just, I was having lunch or I was running errands or I was yeah. being me. And like, sometimes people would say something about it and I'd be like, they'd be like, Oh, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. What's up? Like, and forget <laughs> that it was there. Yeah. And then at the same time, before I had the port and I was just, I had the handicap pass um, that I'd be parking with. And there was, yes, oh, one man. situation, of course, well, several situations with that, but the first time it happened to me, I was walking into a Starbucks and I parked and it was really my, it was probably my first time using the pass. I was already nervous mm. about it. I was already like having anxiety of like that, that someone would say something and somebody did, which is just like, you know, and, and I think it's almost like a rite of passage for anyone with an invisible illness to go through that initial situation. And I remember this guy just was sitting at a table in front of Starbucks and he's like, um, you shouldn't be parking there. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can, I have a handicap pass. And he's like, you're not disabled. And I was like, you're not a doctor. And then like, I walked yeah. away and, but I was fuming. I was just like, I was so angry with, with him and with the situation. And I went home and I went, um, and I spoke with my mother and I told her, we're just crying, just how bad it made me feel and like how judged I mm. felt. And she was like, get over it. And that's mm. a lot of my tough love in the book. Is <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't feel like you're like tough. Like, I feel like you're like, there are other ways yeah. to look at it. You know, like it's a constructive yeah. thing. It's not like, you know, it's, yeah, it's like we it can off, sit here know? and we can cry about it or we can come up with a solution about yeah. it. And so we talk. And you're very oh, solution-based. so solution-based. Yeah. Uh, if I don't have a yes. way of like moving forward with it to know that I can take care of it the next time, the uneasiness for yeah. me is so anxiety producing. And so the solution we came up with was making business cards um, that were curiosity cards, I called them. And I just mm -hmm. went on Vistprint and I created like front and backside cards that said, I saw you staring or something like that. And it's okay to yeah. be curious. And then if you would like more information on what's going on with me or what this is, or, you know, answers to your questions, like here, you can check out my blog. And at that time I was very, very active on my Let's Feel Better blog, um, which I started in 2012. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that really served me well because it was a way for me to escape those situations and to not have to engage every single time. Because when you're a patient advocate, you know, you start to get this feeling like my job, my whole world needs to be educating every single person in my path. And that's not the case. It's not my responsibility to educate every single person in the world. Absolutely yes. You not. have to have boundaries on that. You have to give yourself space to be a person and to not have your day interrupted by that. And then do advocacy in ways that are super meaningful to you that you feel will have the most impact. And for me, those day-to-day -day conversations were not really having a, an impact. They were just causing me so much frustration and anxiety. And yeah. so that was a great solution for me. And it's something I recommend for anyone who has a visible medical device that doesn't want to talk about it. Or it has an invisible illness and say you're, yeah. you have a handicapped parking mm -hmm. placard and you use it, you know, or disabled parking placard, mm -hmm. I should say, you know, and you use it um, and someone judges you for using it, but you look yeah. fine to them, you know, like it's even that kind of thing. Um, or, I mean, I, I can even see situations where you could be using a tool like that, even with completely invisible symptoms. Like if you're feeling nauseous or feeling fatigued and someone can see that you're starting yeah. to like sweat or starting to like feel uncomfortable and you can just yeah. be like, here, if, I'm just tired. Everything you know? <laughs> for if you're having panic attacks, if you're having, if you have mm -hmm. something like, I also have dysautonomia. And so there were also instances where I would go out in public and I had one really bad, just like flare at one point for like six months, um, <laughs> where I was just, yeah. <laughs> sometimes do that <laughs> where I was like fainting and I was fainting with absolutely zero warning. 
And so I would mm. go to the grocery store and then I would be on the floor. And, and so I was yeah. always, um, trying to think of better ways to handle those situations. Um, and I, you know, it's tools, it's, it's going around with medical ID cards and medical bracelets. And, you know, how do you, you have to kind of instruct the public on how you want them to respond. Otherwise there will be pandemonium and there will be chaos and concern. And it doesn't have to be that situation for so many patients. Like mm -hmm. we know that while it may look like an extreme crisis on the outside to other people, this is a Tuesday for us. And we don't want 911 called every Tuesday just because we're out living our lives. Um, so if you yeah. can have tools that give people instructions, you know, things like if you have epilepsy or you have fainting or you have diabetes and you, you know, you have an opportunity where you can treat yourself or you can have others help mm -hmm. you without having to make a giant scene about it. You want to do that right. for yourself, not for anyone else, just for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk to us a little bit about the dysautonomia too and, and what yeah. that means and um, how that affects right. you as well? So of course, whenever you have a chronic illness, along the way you develop comorbidities, you develop secondary diseases. Um, and so for me, I started developing um, neurological symptoms and autonomic dysfunction. And so dysautonomia is just that it's the dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. Um, and so everything that's automatic in your body, things like um, blood pressure, circulation, um, sleep patterns, um, being able to stay hydrated naturally, um, things like that were all just unregulated with me. So it caused fainting, it caused dizziness, um, migraines, pain, just a lot of like confusing symptoms. And I had to be constantly hydrated, which was one of the reasons I had the central lines and the pick lines because I really needed um, daily fluids that, I mean, I could sit there and drink eight bottles of Gatorade, three bottles of water, um, none, like all of those oral IV solutions and it just would go right yeah. through me and my potassium would be low. Um, I would just have all these deficiencies and really the only thing that helped was IV fluids. And, um, and so I did that for several years and I caught sepsis twice because yes, oh. matching a central line, which is basically that open line to your heart with an immune deficiency where you have already a, such a vulnerable immune system, like it's a given really that that eventually is going to interact in a bad way. And so while we were expecting yeah. it, it was still awful. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, it's nice that you can yeah, laugh about it now. now so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I remember um, one of the great things is that you, you post a lot on yeah. Insta stories and just talk really openly about stuff that you're dealing with. And you posted something like a week or two ago that was basically like, my house is like, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical <laughs> warehouse. <laughs> and you have like all these IV bags and all different things that like some of the stuff that you've held onto, you don't necessarily need, but you're like, I might need it in the future. And so you're always making sure that you have the tools that you need, which is great. Um, and you're also always trying different products to manage various yeah. symptoms um, and like giving honest reviews of the products, whether it's a CBD product or um, a heat pack or, you know, um, some different kind of therapy that you're trying for your nausea or something like that. So it's really great for people to follow along. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, until the end of this month, they are offering you $50 off. Go to emberlabs.com. That's E-M-B-R-Labs.com. Enter code INVISIBLE50 at checkout and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. You mentioned your mom, and I know your husband comes up a lot on your social media posts as well, but did you find that you became your own advocate as you're teaching everyone to do as well as needing 
an, a personal advocate, be that a friend, family member, or a loved one, um, along this journey to health? And, and how has that affected those relationships? Well, in the beginning, um, like you said, my mom was, was a little bit more into, um, you know, energy work and like that kind of alternative healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and once she realized, and she was very early on realized like, oh, that's not going to work for her. Um, and she started to really understand, you know, this is not, I'm not faking it. I'm, this is real stuff that's going down. She became my biggest advocate long before I understood what an advocate was. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, she would go to the emergency room with me, doctor's offices with me and fight for me. And really she was just a great role model for me and how to stand up for myself. And she has uh, similar conditions. She has uh, similar issues with her immune system, which was wasn't diagnosed until after I was diagnosed. Yeah. Of course. Um, But she always dealt with medical issues throughout her life and doctors who didn't believe her. And she really helped me to understand that I didn't have to put up with that and that I could speak up for myself. Mm -hmm. And she also helped me have a better attitude about dealing with the trauma of of constant medical issues. And when when I talk about that, I mean, I have great memories weirdly enough of when I was in the ER as a child or as a young teenager where we had rules. Like if we go to the ER, we're not going to cry about it. We're going to laugh. We're going to watch funny TV shows. We're going to make jokes. We're going to, you know, prank the doctors. Like, you know, (laughs) we're going to like, we would often go into the emergency room and, and my mom would be like, all right, we're ready to have the baby. Like, you know, just to diffuse the tension. So this didn't have to be drama and trauma all the time. And then my husband mm. and I met when, um, when we were 17 or high school sweethearts mm. and, um, the first like month or so of me, um, he and I dating, you know, I was trying to just slowly ease him into understanding like that I was sick and that this was not a temporary mm-hmm. thing. And he was so, so this was something you weren't public about with like your friends and yeah, not really. And, stuff. and and it was something I was still yeah. kind of like figuring out myself. And I, yeah. And I, so right. I, I didn't really, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't very public about it. And I'd had bad kind of reactions from family members who didn't understand from friends who didn't understand. And so I really wasn't eager to be open about this kind of stuff. Um, but of course you have to be yeah, in a romantic got, relationship. No at some point. I mean, it was <laughs> yeah. a week into that relationship. I was throwing up and I, there was no, yeah. was definitely a lot of, and saying, I swear yeah, I'm not yeah, pregnant. Not pregnant. <laughs> and, um, and he was great. He was really, I mean, just from day one, extremely compassionate, extremely willing to learn. And so, um, we kind of had a very open dialogue between myself, my mother, who had been my full-time, you know, caregiver, uh, and him about bringing him into the fold and about how much responsibility he wanted to take on. And again, we're 17. We're, you know, we were dating for maybe just a couple of months at this point when we had the real serious conversations. And I mean, I knew at that point that I wanted to marry, I knew from like our first date that I wanted to marry him. Like I was head over heels. Um, and so I knew this was going to be a long-term thing and that he was going to have to you know, kind of be a part of this. And he was always open to it. So whenever I would go to the emergency room, my mom would call him, he would come and she basically taught him how to be with me in that situation. Like how not to panic, how not to, um, be dismissed. Um, you know, when to get the doctors, when to calm me down. Um, and so he, he, he was trained almost to be my co-advocate. Um, and at the same time I was learning myself how to be my own advocate and be independent in that. Um, yeah. (laughs) Sort of learned alongside each other, it sounds like, and it has contributed to obviously a very loving open relationship too. Um, because he shows up on social media with you all the time, you know, you're always talking about this stuff in his presence too. And it's, it's great because you guys are so open and supportive of each other with regard. I can't really imagine being in a relationship, like a healthy relationship where they're not a part of that, where they're not, you know, in kind of like a, a supportive role. 
Um, and it, it's a two way street. Like he supports me with these challenges that I have. I support him with challenges that he has, you know, it, it's like any other relationship. Like if you are there for each other, then it's, it's not like a, you know, Oh, he takes care of me all the time. He waits on me hand and foot. Like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that to no, me. Like, I feel like we're equal yeah. partners in this. Absolutely. But I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people who are listening may not, you know, understand that fully in their lives yet. And I think sometimes it does take some people a journey to understand the equal partnership part of a relationship, you know, and sometimes getting sick can be a blessing in that way. Right. Because it can actually force us into that reality with our partners. And it's not something that is inherent. It's not something that is like you suddenly wake up and know how to be the perfect support person. Um, just of course like not. you don't wake yeah. up and and know how to be the perfect patient. It's a learning process. It's what you have to do together. Yeah. And it, and you guys obviously did do it together, which is yeah. really lovely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about work and life. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that, that I brought up earlier is how in the book you really lay out different ways that people with chronic illness can find ways to work and create income um, remotely. How have you managed to do that for yourself in your career? It's been uh, a lot of trial and error, but my career has been so exciting and that I've been able to kind of because of my limitation, find really interesting ways to make it work and find really great people to make it work with. Um, so mm-hmm. I am a patient advocacy strategist and, uh, I started off actually as a publicist. That was my original career. Um, when I first went into the working world, uh, and I owned my own PR mm-hmm. company and I also did freelance writing. Um, obviously I was writing and publishing and, um, anyway, and I, yeah, you your yeah, blog, I had my blog and, yeah. um, and I, had this PR company and I was managing like 10 clients at once by myself. I was a one person show. Yeah. Go-getter. But I was very young and I didn't have any backup plan for what would happen if I got really, really sick and couldn't handle anything. And that happened. I got really sick and all of my clients, I had to give them to someone else because I had no contingency plan. And I promised myself from that point that like, I wasn't going to put myself and the people that were trusting me and, and working with me in a situation where that could happen. You know, it's a matter of like really setting yourself up for success. And so now as a consultant, I, um, I only take on as many as I can handle at once. I space out my hours. Um, and I am a consultant now, so I, I work with a lot of different clients um, and I don't necessarily work um, always like, you know, 50 hours a week or, or something like that. Like I, uh, it, it kind of depends on what you're yeah. able to handle, right? Well, is it, are you working remotely? Like you're working from home with all of yeah, these Yeah, right now too? I work completely and entirely from home remotely. Um, using tools like Zoom, using tools like Slack. Um, and I, uh, I guess in a way it's the best time to be chronically ill, right? Because if you're going to seek out work opportunities, we have access to the internet we have email and we have cell phones and things that are, you know, tools that are very, making it very accessible for, for people if, if they have, the ability and the, the energy to, to put into creating a, a career outside of um, an actual workplace, right. if you will. And, you know, there are still times if I'm feeling well and I want to be able to go to meetings and be there in person, I can. Um, but for the most part, I set myself up so that I can always get the job done, even if I'm at home or from hospital. And, um, you know, at one point um, I was doing I remember I was doing an interview. Uh, I was freelancing for a magazine. I was doing a celebrity interview and I was in the mm. hospital. I was admitted oh, and wow. I was like this, this, uh, who was I interviewing? Um, oh, Darren Chris. Uh, he's yeah. Oh yeah. From, from Glee. Right. And this was, yeah. this was the day before his first episode aired on Glee. And so I really wanted to get oh, that wow. interview to be out by the morning. And I remember like I was 
in the hospital. I had an IV in my arm. The alarm was going off. I was typing, I was talking and you know, it's, it is what you make of it. Like it's one way to, di- well, it's one way to distract yeah. you from the negativity, the possible negativity that can sort of seep in mentally when you're sitting in the hospital. Right. Which was something that at that point you were probably very used to yeah. as well. You know, it's one way to deflect from the trauma in a healthy way because you're turning right. it into income. And I like, I always like to be working. It, it does. It helps take my mind off of it. Um, I definitely feel really uneasy when I'm not working. And, um, and I've just tried to work with companies who I can feel comfortable telling from the start, like I have a condition, I will always alert you if things are going downhill, but you know, in some other cases I've had companies that are either no compassion where, you know, they, they don't understand it's not something they want to deal with. And then I've had companies that are overly compassionate where they would send me flowers every time I went to the hospital. And I was like, which is so weird. Bankrupt the (laughs) HR budget on flowers. Like you can't, you can't be doing that. Like you don't have to feel that bad. Like it's nice. (laughs) Also, that's something that's it's nice, but it's also like every time. Like if you're someone who's like very frequently receiving medical care, like if someone gives you flowers every time, it starts to feel a bit. Yeah, and I'm like, no, this is my normal. Like it's a bad year. Like this is just how it is. But you know, I can still get the job done. But you're also working with companies that are working in the patient advocacy space. So I imagine a lot of them are also, you know, very open to your needs. Yeah. And that's kind of been excellent because um, I've been doing this now for 10, 12 years, something like that, like working in advocacy. Um, And before that, doing journalism and PR, I wasn't working with clients in the health space. And so I didn't really, I wasn't really able to like be open or express them like, who I was, but now a lot of people hire me because of the experience that I have as a patient, because I'm constantly in the hospital. I am, you know, they value my expertise as a patient advocate. And, um, you know, and the fact that I'm constantly hospitalized is me having continuing education. Yes. (laughs) That's a great way of looking at it, isn't it? Um, so you mentioned a few instances where people confronted you about, um, you know, parking in a disabled spot and, you know, having your central line visible and things like that. Have there been any other experiences that you can share with us where you've been confronted and forced to justify the fact that you were ill and people couldn't tell or, you know, that you were fine and that this was Most of those situations happen with doctors and doctors who um, who I have to see on a whim. So for instance, um, a couple of months ago, I had a really, really severe sinus infection and I needed to go see, um, an infectious disease doctor about getting like a second opinion and seeing if I needed to be on IV antibiotics. And I mean, doctors who just, you get in their office and they don't look at your medical records. They have no interest in that. And if I sit down and just tell them what's going on, often they're just like, well, no, that's not possible. Or they don't believe me. And I'm like, <laughs> it's literally right here in this document. Here mm-hmm. are my test results. Here are my scans. Here are my blood. You know, here's every, here's my proof. All you need to do is open that folder. Mm-hmm. And I have doctors who have just refused to open the folder. Do you think that's a problem with the way that doctors are being trained or the fact that most of them only have 15 minutes with us? Like, is that a failing of the medical system? A, as and, a whole? and I know it's a time constraint because they've told me you are wasting my time. I have 10 other patients to see. And I'm like, I'm wasting wow. your time. Like, like yeah, you're wasting mine. Basically. Thanks. Yeah. Wow. And do you find also like, is there ever a difference when you bring your husband with you to these appointments? Like, will the doctors if you're having difficulty with someone, will they be more willing to listen when you have a male? Sometimes they are, you know, I I don't, I don't bring my mother or my husband to as many doctor's appointments as I used to. Um, Yeah. Cause you're more versed in how to handle this. And also, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's it's not even a bonus to have them there. Sometimes it makes, it makes Mm. it so that they think that, you know, I'm being coddled, I guess. So sometimes it backfires. Sometimes it helps. Um, all I know is that I need to go in there not feeling, um, vulnerable. I need to go in there feeling confident and, and having my goals and knowing what I need to get out of this appointment in order to function. And, um, and so, 
yeah, so, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's better to go alone. Sometimes you need that support. If I've had doctors in the past that have yeah. been jerks, that have been, you know, consistently um, the kind that, that don't believe what I'm saying or won't open the folder, then yes, I definitely come back with an advocate to help me advocate for myself and, and to provide a little. Take some yeah. stress off, right? Yeah, yeah. So why don't we talk about boundaries for a second? Um, it's come up, we've touched on it a little bit, but I wondered if you could speak more um, in detail about the idea of boundaries as someone with chronic illness and what it looks like for you and what you recommend for the loved ones of people with chronic illness, as well as for people with chronic illness in terms of revealing their, their different um, disabilities and their, their different illnesses. How, how do you suggest people go about that when they're looking into a world of chronic illness? It's a illness? lot of experimentation. Um, for me, in the very beginning, my goal with sharing my story online and sharing it through my blog and through social media was a matter of, I want my relatives to understand. I want, I want people in my life who are supposed to love me to not hate me because they don't understand what's going on with me. And in doing that and posting those blogs and sharing that information, I didn't get anything back from them. I didn't, I didn't get any kind of positive response from them. But all of these other people came into my life to say that they now understood or this helped them. Um, I mean, I had high school teachers. I had neighbors who barely knew me and now felt like they were totally engrossed in my life. Um, which was good and bad. And as, you know, as things progressed, I, I started trying to figure out like, what is my goal with sharing? What is my goal with being an advocate? Um, at first it had been something so, so personal to me. Um, and then it became, wow, if, if I'm able to step up for other people, then maybe they won't have to go through this. And writing the book was for everyone. It was, it was the guidebook I wanted. It was, it was the information that I felt needed to be out there. And I also didn't feel like I needed to, I had been sharing everything on my blog, absolutely everything, all of my worst days, all of my best days. And in the book, I was just trying to share concrete information and solutions that would apply to everyone. I didn't really feel like I needed to tell them, you know, publish every single story about myself. Um, not everyone wants yeah. to do that either, do they? You know, some people just want to keep it right. even more private. And that's something we've been talking about um, at We Go Health is um, is talking about. And this is one of the companies that you're you're working for, as right? A right. Advocate. I'm one of their. Uh, I'm their patient leader network coordinator, and mm -hmm. we're working on these mm -hmm. different courses. And one of the things we've really been talking about is boundaries and about privacy and about how far do you want to let it go. Um, you know, there are people mm -hmm. who have um, conditions that are just not something that they feel like they want to discuss in everyday life. Things like irritable bowel disease, testicular diseases, um, even breast mm -hmm. cancers, endometriosis, um, pelvic floor dysfunction, all of that stuff can be mm -hmm. like, do I want my next door neighbor and my uncle and so-and-so hearing about all that? And there are so many ways of having an impact and sharing and being an advocate without putting yourself out there on a stake. Like you don't need to be, mm. you know, the uh, sacrifice yourself, your privacy. You can come up with a username. You can contribute in ways that, that don't have to share your whole personal story. For yeah. me, I, yeah. I felt, um, I blogged for a long time about my personal stories and I did it up until the point where it didn't feel good anymore, where it didn't feel like I was mm. I was getting more negative than I was getting positive. Um, and then I, you know, now I share so much of my life on Instagram. Um, and I yep. love that. I just, I don't know. I, I, it's an easy platform. I guess it, it's sort of easier to post the content because you can just hit right. And, and I can it. share my whole day. And the thing that I really like about it is that people can see not just one blog post about one topic. It's like, you see me working, you see me going to appointments, you see yeah. me walking the dog, like, what am I, <laughs> what's my diet like? Like, where are my friends? You know, they see this whole life instead of, you know, just yes. the, the awful parts, the sick parts or, you know, so I think for boundaries, it, 
it's going to fluctuate throughout your life, what you're comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with. And I'm sure they'll probably get to a point for me where I won't be so comfortable sharing everything on Instagram, but I do <laughs> share a whole heck of a lot. And, and, yeah. and you know what, but, but the feedback that I get from it, that people need to hear that they need to see it in action. Yeah. Cause it's interesting that you, you say that about, you know, openly sharing things on a platform like Instagram because, um, and, and seeing mm-hmm. the whole person, because one of the things that also comes up in your writing and in your book, um, is about relationships and not just romantic ones, but friendships as well. And how there are going to be some people who can handle it and want to be part of it. And there are going to be some people who you might lose for a while, um, and might come back around, might not, but you have to sort of be open to allowing those relationships to evolve in the way that they're meant yes. to evolve. Right. Yeah. I had a whole, a whole yeah. thing about friendships on that I put on my blog, it was years ago, um, my first round of like sepsis. And I just didn't feel like I got enough support, the support that I felt like I deserved. And I, you know, I required, and it wasn't until like years later that I stopped and thought the reason that people weren't as supportive as I needed them to be wasn't because they didn't care. It wasn't because they were awful people. It wasn't because they were out to get me. This was an issue of it takes a friend to be a friend. You know, you need to participate in your relationships in order for them to strengthen. Being chronically ill does not get you off the hook from being a good friend. And as soon as you stop being a good friend, your good friends disappear. So that was a Mm. really long, (laughs) long life lesson that I had to learn. And now that, you know, I have ways of communicating with people that, you know, a big part of it was I felt like I didn't have avenues to communicate with people because I couldn't go to parties. I couldn't go out. You know, I was isolated and, you know, social media gave me a lot of ways to connect with people, to stay updated on their lives. You know, it's not just about posting my story. It's about watching everybody else's story, you know, seeing where they are and seeing how I can support them and, that's another thing I cover in the book too, is just, yeah, just friendships and how do you be a person of value to other people? Um, you know, mm-hmm. if you can't physically be in the same room with them. And so with a lot of my right. friends, I use this app called Marco Polo. Oh my God. Isn't I love great? that app. It's such a good <laughs> app. You can, you know, yeah. you can record video messages and send them back and forth to each other. And you know, you can do it while you're in the car and it's like, it's much more personal than a phone call or a text. And it makes you feel like you're there with them and you can stay updated. You can get that like full story. And you know, then yeah. if you don't see your friends for like several months, you still feel like when you connect again, that you've been in it this whole time. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Cause I think a lot of people use apps like WhatsApp and Marco Polo and email, right. To keep in touch with friends who are long distance, but actually those could be the friends who live down the street that you might not get as much of a chance to see because your body isn't letting you sometimes, you know, so they can be very helpful. And we'll link to those on the episode yes. page too. Um, and, and I also think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned about talking about your story and, and sharing um, whether or not people are prepared for the information um, is that it also normalizes the conversation, doesn't it? You know, the more we talk about it, the more okay it becomes to talk about stuff that nobody yeah. else gets. Um, and the more people will start to understand like what primary immune deficiency is, what dysautonomia is, what chronic illness yeah. is. And right? I think a really good example of that is, is not even with me, but with, um, there's one girl that I, I follow a ton of people on Instagram, but there's one girl, Laura Parker, who um, is a writer for mm-hmm. BuzzFeed and she uh, is writing a book now about vagina problems. And she is yep. an advocate for patients with a host of vagina problems, endometriosis, vaginismus, pelvic floor dysfunction. And I have had many, many uh, abdominal surgeries in the last couple of years. And now in the last, mm. like two months ago, I was diagnosed with pelvic floor dysfunction. And, yes, oh, wow. and I would have had absolutely zero idea what it was, that there were all these things that I could do for it, had I not been watching Laura's journey. And had I not seen her talk so openly about it, like that can be yes. such a, yeah. a a terrible thing to, you know, to suddenly come down with another element of your disease that's so intimate. And now I feel like I can yeah. talk about that on Instagram. And I know how important it is that I talk about it too. 
you know, now it's happening to me. It might happen to somebody else. It probably will. And if I can share those experiences and I can, you know, help to destigmatize, you know, all the things that when I see people sharing their ostomy stories, when I see people sharing, you know, Mm -hmm. their irritable bowel, their endometriosis, their testicular cancer stories. I mean, the more, the more private or taboo let stuff. It all out. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> there, yeah. we're, we're definitely yeah. in a period where a lot of, a lot of disease communities have, um, have very vocal advocates, but there are still some communities that feel pressure to be quiet and to be demure and to not, you know, talk out loud about what's actually going on. And it's improved so many disease communities to reduce the stigma and you know, we have to keep doing that. Like it it has to be done. And it's interesting because I think someone like Laura Parker, she actually, her social media celebrity started because obviously she worked at BuzzFeed and they did a video, must be a few years ago now, where she was for the first time trying different CBD and THC products to manage her her endometriosis Her and Kelsey Dara, who has trigeminal neuralgia. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. So Kelsey, Kelsey Dara and Laura Parker, um, I've spoken with them, I've interviewed them both. And yeah, their stories were huge when they came out with those on BuzzFeed. And then they had a show on Hulu, Can We Cure It, where they tried a bunch of alternative therapies for both of their conditions. But, mm-hmm. you know, things like uh, Kelsey, whose condition trigeminal neuralgia is super rare and very few people know about it, but it is extraordinarily painful. Uh, yeah. It's one of, it's considered one of the most, like that and um, CRPS are the two, considered the two most painful illnesses. Yeah. And so, and the fact that she shared that she's, you know, she's doing funny things like sharing her retainer face where she takes her retainer and flips it inside out. So she has this hilarious looking face, but you know, things like that are great. (laughs) And then Laura talking about her, you know, masturbation and sex life. And like yeah. how she copes with it, how she can have a happy relationship and, you know, to well, and she, she recently did a really cool thing where she was talking about different, like, because people who have endometriosis and different pelvic floor, um, you know, illnesses and, and concerns, um, sometimes sex can be really painful. And so she was talking about different ways that you can sort of, um, not dilate, but like widen, I guess the, the vaginal canal so that you can make sex more comfortable and like different tools you can use for that. And like, just as you say, normalizing, not only the conversations, but then through a medium like Instagram, where you're like, here's a picture Mm -hmm. of this stuff. Um, and it's not like something that the Instagram, you know, corporate offices are going to pull off the, you know, the, the internet, because there's no like nipples or, you know, um, genitalia in the actual pictures. So it's really interesting the way she's able to do that. It's yeah. fantastic. And, I, and it really, honestly, it really helped me. It really helped me. And going into pelvic floor therapy, there was very little online about what it was. And there was very little about like what it was going to be like. And it's an extremely intimate mm-hmm. thing. But if you go into it with a certain mindset, if you kind of know what's going to happen, if you also, if you have a great therapist who's doing it with you, then it can be a wonderful, empowering experience, or it Mm -hmm. can be a quiet, shameful experience. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, I love, I love that. Like, not only are you inspiring people, but you're also being inspired by a lot of other people. I'm so so inspired by so many people. I like aggressively follow so many people. Uh, and now I feel like I'm a very weird part of their lives because I, I know I <laughs> yeah. watch all these people daily. I'm invested in their health. I'm invested in their happiness. I want to see them succeed. And, you know, and now yeah. I'm aware, I'm aware of what it's like to live with all these different diseases. So. Yeah, no, it's funny. Cause it's like, you were just a moment ago saying you had to let the dog out of the office. And I was like, Oh, happy. Yeah. Hi, happy. It's like, I know your dog. Yeah, <laughs> He's an internet yeah, celebrity. I mean, it's nice. It kind of, it's, we've expanded our community. We're all friends, you know, in some weird fashion, yeah. we're all a part of each other's lives. Yeah. We're all connected. Yeah. But it's also, as you have said before, not just about your illness defining you then it's about your illness being a part of the magnificent variations of different things that happen in your life, you know? Um, so no, it's great. Um, we've covered so much today and I like to wrap up my interviews with some top three lists. 
And um, I wondered if you could give us your top three tips for someone who either already has a chronic illness or is waiting for a diagnosis or looking at entering the world of invisible or chronic illness. Um, what would be your top three tips for living with these illnesses that you would give to these people? Um, first, buy my book. <laughs> yep. Um, no, but <laughs> surviving and thriving with an invisible chronic yeah. illness. Um, yep. No, but uh, uh, one thing I would recommend, highly recommend that even if you feel like you have been shamed for being told that your illness is, you know, psychosomatic, or there's a lot of like issues between people having um, undiagnosed diseases and being told that they have mental illness. But whatever that is, um, you still have so much stress in being a patient and being a chronic illness patient. And you need to have a outlet and you need tools for that. So I really recommend that everyone goes to therapy. Find yourself a good therapist. Mm -hmm. Whether you think that you need it or not, you need it. No, and, yeah. and it's not just for you. It's for your whole village. You know, it's everyone that helps play a part in your life. Like, I have reduced the amount of crying in exam rooms by 85% since going into therapy. <laughs> you know, I yeah. think it's really done yeah. such a, a, a good deal of like positive health. Positive. So that's, that's one thing. And then I guess get involved in the community, share your story with within your personal boundaries, however that feels comfortable, because every voice matters. Mm -hmm. Every voice makes a difference to somebody else who's in the dark and doesn't know what to do next. Um, yeah. Yeah. But conversely, I guess it's also not your job to it's educate not... everyone. So understand what that boundary yes. is for you. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I guess make business cards, curiosity yeah. cards. Always, you know, <laughs> right? everything is doable. Everything is solvable. There's a solution. If you just sit and go as out of the box as you possibly can, there's a way of doing things. Like we would not be in the age that we're in with the apps that we have, with the all of these tools and all the community if we didn't think outside the box. So just think about it. Think about what else you could do that's new and different that you haven't seen done before. Which I guess also involves being kind yeah. to yourself as well, right? Being forgiven, forgiving yes. of yourself. Yeah. Which is connected to yeah. the therapy, of course. Um, now, obviously you've also made some lifestyle changes. Um, and I wondered if you had any top three, be they cheats or guilty pleasures or even comfort activities that you turn to when you're having a flare up of any of your illnesses. Um, what are your top three favorite things that give you joy? Um, Let's see. I, I know you love, I know you love that heating. You have that heating thing for your, your foot and ankle, right? Or foot oh, and yes. Like oh, that. okay. So I have yeah. invested in like absolutely every massage therapy tool um, that <laughs> exists. I have shoulder massagers, mm. the foot and ankle massagers, back massage, like just the whole thing. So I'm definitely big mm. on like massage tools and physical therapy tools that use. Hmm. Um, and I, I think a big, uh, <laughs> a big thing that I've invested into is like Uber eats and grocery deliveries. Like I just started doing Instacart and it has changed my world. I, <laughs> it's it's the such best. A, a, a drain on my energy budget to go grocery shopping, yeah. especially like I get in there and then I'm like, if I don't go in with a, a list and know exactly what I want, like, it drains me. It's, it's, it's awful. It's a waste of energy. So yeah. Yeah. Um, massage tools, Uber eats and, and grocery delivery apps. And then also, um, we hired a dog walker and a housekeeper. Um, you know, we live in a small enough apartment that it's not like a crazy amount of money to have someone come and clean the house. But for me to clean the house, for me to get on the floor and scrub the floors is an entire day, perhaps two days worth of energy. Like that, that yeah. completely drains me. So if there's anything that I can do to reduce the strain on myself with dog walkers in the Florida heat, mm -hmm. with groceries, with all that kind of stuff, like I'll do it. Like I'll, I'll do yeah. that. No, that's great. Those are great, really great strategies. I think for people who are dealing with, especially yeah. fatigue, but also with, with potential concerns about like being in crowds and like being exposed to germs. Like if you've got a primary immune deficiency, mm -hmm. Um, or something that's affecting your, um, you know, your right. immune system. 
definitely something to think about. Well, Alana, is there anything else you would like to tell everyone listening in today? Just, I'm so grateful to be here and thank you so much for having me and, <laughs> and letting me share my story. It's been such yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to have you on. I'm so thrilled to introduce the audience to you and to your book um, because man, we should have done this so much sooner. I should have, it should have been my first episode. Like guys, go get this book right now. Um, but it has been such a help to me. And again, it's sort of like that Bible that I keep like going back to and referring to. So um, thank you so much for writing it for everyone in the community. Um, and if everyone wants to find you, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me at alanajacklin.com is my main website, which has links to my YouTube channel. And then you can find me on Instagram and at Alana underscore Jacqueline. Fantastic. And we'll also link to Let's Feel Better, which is your blog that, I mean, you're no longer updating that from what I understand. Just a little bit. I'm kind of reposting. I'm doing a lot more YouTube these days. So yeah. Yeah. That seems to be more the the going sort of interest is in video content anyway. So I'm sure everyone appreciates that. Well, Alana, it has been such a pleasure having you on. I thank you so much and wish you all the best working with WeGo Health and um, hope to see some more books in the future. Thank you so much. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.